Hey, good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. Uh, Merry almost Christmas, right? We've got another week to go and uh, looking forward to the big week. Um, I want to welcome you here. My name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors. And if you're joining us here for the first time, whether it's here over in the Ridge venue, I want to welcome you. But we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. So inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. We use it every week here at Rocky Peak. So I want to encourage you to reach in, take that out. And then if you guys are ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here in your place under your name. And and we're just looking to you for leadership, Lord. We just, uh, we see you as hovering over this place. And you are here with us. Uh, You're here in the name of Jesus. You're here to lead, to guide, to speak, to heal to do things only you can do. And so, God, we look to you as our leader and the one who changes our lives from the inside out. And we pray that by the power of your spirit today, we would hear your voice, that we would listen and follow, and we would move into a new dimension of our understanding what it means to be a follower of yours. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, if we were to ask them, they would say that this would be a day that they would never forget, that graphic images of violence is something that they will never be able to erase from their mind. If you were there, for example, in the early 60s when JFK was shot, that's seen on TV, but I mean, you were, you were there and you saw it firsthand, you would never forget those images. If you were standing in New York uh, when the Twin Towers came down on 9-11, You would never forget that day. And in a similar way, they will never forget this moment in their lives. If you were to ask them, had they seen this violence coming, they'd not really know what to say. Because on the one hand, it's something they had certainly discussed. Tensions were escalating. Conflict was mounting they had even discussed the question, do you ever think that the verbal violence would escalate to physical violence? But they never saw it happening like this. Never saw it happening so fast. And so they'll never forget that day, that moment when this spark, like a single spark that was suddenly caught by a gust of wind like we've seen the last couple of weeks and turned into a raging fire. They'll never forget the event that was like that spark that ignited the blaze that was going to change all their lives forever. Well, today we are continuing this series that uh, we've been in the last couple of months. In fact, today we're wrapping it up. It's called Unfiltered, Discovering a Higher Calling. And for those of you who are new, this is actually like the third season. Think of it like the third season, an ongoing drama, like a longer series called Unfiltered. And the core concept of this series is this is a series about Jesus. And so what we've seen in this series is that when it comes to Jesus, we all tend to have images of who he is, what he looks like, what it, what it means to follow him in our life that are built up over a lifetime of uh, Sunday school or uh, PBS documentaries or whatever it is. And so our goal in this series is to go back to the very start of the story, back to the first century back to one of the first and most important documents that describes the life and teaching of Jesus. We call it the Gospel of Matthew. And to see if we can kind of take off some of those filters that have built up over time and capture some new images of who Jesus really is and was, what he said, did, what it means to follow him. 
And so in this third season of Unfiltered, we've been looking at the most famous message ever given in the history of the world. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus lays out his mission, his message. And the last few weeks, we've been looking at this key statement that Jesus makes in this sermon, in chapter 5 and verse 20, that most scholars would agree is, is the, key, uh, the key statement that really unlocks the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, or at least most of it. And so today, as we wrap up this third season, what we're going to see is, in the same way, the final episode of a season of TV uh, often brings together and wraps up everything that's gone before, that's what's going to happen today. And so if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, I'd like you to open up and turn with me to chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 20. We're going to start with this powerful, provocative statement that Jesus makes. It's the key that unlocks the rest. And then we're going to see how he wraps up this session, section today. So in chapter 5 and verse 20, this is a statement we've looked at time and time again the last several weeks. He starts off this whole section by saying, I tell you that unless your righteousness, your rightness, your goodness, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, which will be two of the, kind of the most religious uh, in their culture, most would see most righteous people in their culture, that unless you're better than them, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of the heavens, in the Greek literally kingdom of the heavens. And so what we've seen is that Jesus has burst on the scene, that he has started his ministry in the north of Galilee with this epic announcement. And his claim is that the kingdom of the heavens, the kingdom of God that's long been promised by the prophets of Israel for hundreds of years, when God would return to the nation, forgive them of their sins, turn all wrongs to right, usher in this golden age with the, the, the king, the son of David, that, uh, and, and kind of heal and restore all of creation, that this, this new era, the, the kingdom, is very near. And so now in the Sermon on the Mount, he's making this really provocative statement that if you want to be part of this kingdom, you want to get on board of this kingdom, that your righteousness, you have to be better than the two groups of people that in their culture, many of those listening to him on the mountainside would see as the ultimate righteous people in their culture. And so the question is, what does he mean? What does this greater righteousness look like? And so what he does in the next, uh, from here to the end of the chapter, of chapter 5, he gives us six illustrations of what real righteousness, greater righteousness, looks like as opposed to religious righteousness, right? So uh, the last few weeks, we've been going over this. So we've, we've gone over the first four of the first, uh, these six illustrations. Today, I want to look at the final two. They're very similar, so we're going to package them together. So there in your note, um, so if you move on, in verse, we're going to jump from verse 20 to the fifth and sixth illustration, which starts at verse 38. And so in verse 38, he starts with number five, and he says, you have heard that it was said. In other words, this is what you've been taught. This is what the word says. More importantly, this is how the word has been interpreted, that you have heard an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Now, help me out. How many of you have ever heard that statement? An eye for an eye, tooth. That's like proverbial in our culture, right? In fact, we're going to see several proverbial statements of Jesus that they're so famous, they become part of our culture. And so we know this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Now, here's the thing. If you were to go back to the law of Moses, there are several places in the law of Moses that say, this is how you should do it, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. 
But what you would see is that this was never designed to be instruction about a personal code of conduct. Here's how you live your life. Here's how to be a righteous man, a righteous woman, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. What you would discover is that an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth has to do with legal judgments. In other words, uh, there was, these were instructions for the judges of Israel. So if you go to court, you want a judge who will give justice, right? And so you want a judge who will have an appropriate punishment. Like we would say the punishment needs to fit the crime. Good. Yeah, and so what you want when you want a, you want a, a judge, the punishment's appropriate. Uh, it's not too much. It's not too little. And so God said that for the courts of Israel, that what you're looking for is fairness. You're looking for equity. You're looking for justice. So an eye for an eye is a way of saying it should be fair. And it both sets the limits of how much it should be, but it, should, it shouldn't be more than that. So for example, let's say that you're in a squabble with your neighbor and he gets angry. And so he lights your field on fire and he burns it down. And now you go to court and, you know, for a court case and you're seeking justice and they'd establish, yes, he did. What would be a just verdict? Well, a just verdict, an eye for an eye, would be that the court would maybe burn down his field, right? Or that even better, they'd probably harvest his field and give you the, the money that you would have had, the great. You see, that's eye for an eye. Now, what would not be righteous is to say, Hey, that's no problem. I'm sure that he was just mad. He didn't mean it. He didn't know the wind was going to kick up. You know, he didn't really mean it. So we're just going to let it go. That wouldn't be just. But it also wouldn't be just to say, we're going to teach this guy a lesson. To teach you a lesson so you never do this again. We're not just going to burn down your field. We're going to burn down your house. Right? That would be not fair. So an eye for an eye sets both the lower limits and the upper limits. That it should be fair, but it shouldn't be too much. So, so you see this in our lives, right? Like we have the eye for an eye. So like if someone cuts you off in traffic, it's really not, it's really not righteous to follow them for 30 miles on their bumper, right? That's, that's like more than eye for an eye, right? Now, all right, so, uh, so here's what I want you to catch. This is the big picture. This was never designed to be, here's how you live your life, Israel, eye for an eye, in your personal life. Someone hurts you, you hurt them. It was never designed. This was for law courts, okay? So how were, and you say, well, how do you know that? Well, there's another very famous passage in Leviticus that tells you how they were to relate to one another. And this is a very famous passage because Jesus was once asked a famous question and he quoted this passage. So here's the situation. A lot of you have been familiar with this, but Jesus was asked apparently more than once during his ministry, of all the commandments in the Old Testament, all the commandments in the law of Moses, which is the most important? And a lot of you will remember that there were 613, the rabbis had counted them. So the question is, of the 613, which is the most important? And you remember the answer that Jesus said, he quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6. And he said, here's the most important commandment. You would love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Right? In other words, it in our lives, the most important thing is we love God, that he's our number one priority. We want to know him, we want to uh, love him, and we want to please him. Top priority. Jesus, that's number one. But then Jesus went on to say, but the second commandment is like it. And he said, the second commandment is just that you need to, remember this, love your neighbor 
as yourself. Now, you, I don't know if you remember, but he went on to say all the rest of the commandments, the other 611, all of them hang on these two. In other words, all the rest of the commandments are just an explanation or a footnote of what it means to love God or love one another. All right? So this is a very famous quote of Jesus. It's a quote from Leviticus 19. But what I want to do today is go back, since it was so important to Jesus, let's go back and see what Leviticus 19 actually says. So remember, the point is, is that eye for an eye was not a personal code. It was uh, kind of for law courts. So this is how you're to handle it personally. And Luke, uh, Leviticus 19, um, the word says, do not hate a fellow what? Israelite. Okay, let's wake up, I love it. So uh, let's not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. So okay, okay, don't forget that. Don't hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. In other words, you're the people of God. You've, you've come out, you're God's people. Don't hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. He says, do not seek what? And so if someone burns down your field, don't seek revenge, right? So he says, don't, don't seek revenge. Uh, don't bear a grudge. In other words, learn to forgive against uh, anyone among your people. But what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And so in that context, God is defining what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. It's not seeking revenge. It's not bearing a grudge. You're going to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is very important because as we'll see today, later on, in Israel at this time, the rabbis, the Pharisees, it would appear the religious leaders were taking this verse in Luke 19 and saying, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? And they were saying, well, look, what it says is don't hate a fellow Israelite. That's our neighbor. Oh, but what we need, but it's fine to hate everyone else, right? Like, because everyone else, they don't really know God. They're the Gentile dogs. Uh, you know, so, so we hate them, and we also hate Jews who don't follow God. This is why the religious leaders of Jesus' day would look down on sinners and prostitutes. Ah, we don't want anything to do with them. They felt like they were righteous. Are you following this now? So, so, what is, so Jesus says, listen, this is what you've been taught, that to be a righteous man or a righteous woman is to treat people like they treat you, an eye for an eye. He says, but I'm going to say that true righteousness really looks something completely different. So let's go back to what he says. So 538, he says, you've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, which by the way, quick sidebar, this is probably not like a fist fight. This would be like the slap of an insult, which was part of Jewish culture. Now I'm going to need your help for this, all right? So this is going to feel a little weird, but I'm serious, all right? So what I want you to do is I want you to face someone in your aisle. Right, face someone in your aisle. Okay, just look at each other. Now, I want you to take your right hand, and I want you to pretend you're going to slug them in the face. Can you do that? No, you have to face each other. Come on, you're not, you're not playing along. Yeah, like, yeah, like RPYA. They've got a good there. Dane, good job. Right, good job, Christian, good job. Yeah, okay, so, right, you guys are taking me seriously. Only people under 25 take me seriously. So anyway, no, you... Okay, face each other, face each other, look at each other. Now do this. Now, if you're going to hit someone, what I want you to notice is as you hit them, you don't hit them in the right cheek. If you're right-handed, you don't hit them in the right cheek. It's almost impossible. The only way you can hit someone in the right cheek is with a backhand. All right? 
<laughs> You're going like, hey, that reminds me of last night. Anyway, um, all right, so, so uh, probably here he's not talking about a fist fight. It doesn't really matter that much, but just so under, in their culture, the slap was a, a big offense. In fact, later in the Mishnah, there was actually specific fines. If you insult someone with a slap, here's how much you pay, right? So Jesus says, <laughs> that'd be great. Okay, you owe me 50 bucks. That's what the law said. All right, so it says, uh, so I tell you, do not resist any old person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other. If anyone wants to sue you, like takes you to court, you owe them money, for example, and they want to take your shirt to, you know, for payback, hand over your coat as well. Just give them even more than they're asking for. If anyone forces you to go one mile, this was actually a law in the Roman Empire that a Roman soldier or authority like if you were a Jew, they could come and tell you at any time, hey, you need to carry my pack for one mile. That was the law. Uh, and so Jesus said, hey, if that happens, then actually go the second mile. And this has become proverbial too, isn't it? We talk about going the second mile. Um, and so um, he says, so give to the one who asks you uh, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So this gets us pretty nervous. I mean, it's Christmas time. The relatives are coming. Um, all right. <laughs> Okay, so that's the fifth example, right? It's about payback. Okay, number six. Uh, now, next number six is very similar. And he says, so you've heard it said. Now, this is a quote back to Leviticus 19 that we just looked about. He said, love your neighbor and what? Hate your enemy. Now, did it say in there, hate your enemy? No, it said, do not hate a fellow Israelite. There's no place in the whole law where it says, hate your enemy. But that's how they'd taken it. They'd taken it. Like, well, if you're supposed to love your neighbor and not hate your fellow Israelites, I guess it's okay to, like, hate your non-neighbor, your non-fellow Israelite. So he said, okay, so he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who what? Persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Oh, this is how God is. So he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? I mean, that's no, what's the big deal? Are not even tax collectors, the lowest of the low, don't they do that? And if you greet, kind of like shalom, you know, blessing of peace, if you greet or bless only your own people, what are you doing more than others? I mean, even criminals love criminals, right? Remember Sopranos? Do not even <laughs> pagans do that. And then he, gets, he, le he kind of finishes up this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, be what? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you say, yeah, but he doesn't really mean perfect, right? Tell us in the Greek it doesn't mean that. It does mean that. Uh, yeah, it's a, the, word is, the word is teleos. It means perfect, complete, and whole. He says, hey, be like your Father. So what Jesus is doing is he's defining what the greater righteousness is. What does it look like to be not religiously righteous? What does it look like to be greater righteousness to enter the kingdom? He says it's to be like your father. All right? So we're going to come back to all that. Now, this is a very famous passage of scripture. I mean, it's launched movements. You think of the movement uh, or nonviolent um, kind, of, kind of passive uh, revolution you, that was started by like Mahatma Gandhi. It came out of the Sermon on the Mount. You think of the civil rights movement here in the United States. Mark, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came out of the Sermon on the Mount. So it's a very famous passage of scripture, but it's also very controversial and it raises all kinds of questions. It's inspiring, it looks awesome on plaques, 
But in real life, is like that even possible? Give to whoever asks you. I'd be broke by January 1. And so how do we live this out? And so what I want to do today as we wrap up this series, uh, wrap up this message, I want to highlight three big picture principles that flow out of this teaching uh, and then in this series and the message with one important question. So there in your note sheet is a section called Jesus in the Kingdom, the Higher Calling. And so the first principle is one that we've seen every week that I've been teaching the last four weeks. And it goes like this, that real righteousness is higher. Now, the reason we keep coming back to this, this is the whole point of this whole section on the Sermon on the Mount. What does it look like to be righteous? What does it look like to be the people we are created to be? This whole section starts with chapter 5 and verse 20, where Jesus says, if you want to be part of my kingdom, you have to be better than the religious guys. You have to be, your righteousness has to surpass religious righteousness as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Like the righteousness of my kingdom, it's higher, it's richer, it's deeper, it's more powerful than religious righteousness. And so every week, uh, he's given us an example of what real righteousness looks like compared to religious righteousness. So think back with me, week one. He says, you've heard it said, you should not murder, and if you murder, you're a subject liable to judgment in the courts. And so he says, this is how you've looked at it. You've looked at it, as long as you don't kill someone, you're a righteous man. And Jesus said, no, no, real righteousness is higher. If you want to be a righteous man, you need to let go of your anger and pursue right relationships. Then the second week he came back and he said, you've you've heard that it was said that you should not commit adultery, and that if you commit adultery that you're subject to judgment. But he says, "But, but I tell you, That sexual purity, righteousness, is so much more than not sleeping with someone, not your spouse. It's being transformed from the inside out so you truly love and honor other people. And you would never objectify them or use them as an object of your gratification. All right? And so every week, Jesus is saying, hey, real righteousness is higher, it's richer, it's deeper than religious righteousness. And here today, he gives us the final two examples. He says, the way you've looked at it in the past is that to be a righteous man means to give people what they deserve. You've looked at to be righteous is to be practice justice. If they hurt you, you hurt them. If they're good to you, you're good to them. That's what a righteous man would do. He says, but true righteousness is so much more. True righteousness is being transformed to your like your father in heaven that you would always seek a person's highest good, which is what love is. You always take the high road. You never let someone else determine your behavior. You never let someone else's bad behavior determine your behavior. And you don't give people what they deserve. You give people what they don't deserve, like your father in the heavens. That's God's vision for your life, that you be transformed to be like your father. So let's start there, all right? Now we'll build on that. Number two, the second principle is that Jesus' instructions, like in this passage, he gives us several specific instructions, right? Like uh, uh, give to those who ask you, go the second mile, turn the other cheek. 
And so those instructions are illustrations. You might want to put in parentheses, they're not laws. They're illustrations. So, for example, we've seen this throughout the Sermon on the Mount in these six six illustrations that Jesus has given. He often gives an illustration, and it's often an extreme illustration to make a point. Like, think with me, back in the first illustration, he said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit a murder. Anyone who commits murder is liable to judgment before the court. He says, but I tell you that if you get angry with your brother, you are subject to judgment. Now, what's he saying? That we need to change our law code and, hey, you're angry at me, let's call the police, we're going to have you arrested? No. He's given an extreme example to help us understand that real righteousness is more than just not killing, that it's actually having right relationship. The next example is even more obvious. Remember when he said sexual purity is such a big deal, he said that if your right eye offends you, what are you to do? Do you remember? Gouge it out. He said, if your right hand leads you into sin, what do you do? Cut it off. off. Now, is is it a law? Is this a new, like, this is what we do? Like, we start selling in the Rocky Peak bookstore, like, handcrafted machetes, you know, that's like, (laughs) that they say rooted on them, because, you know, we we just want to, like, we're taking Jesus seriously here, right? That we're the first church in the maimed. You know, it's like, no, no, it's like, Jesus is making an extreme point. He's making a point by an extreme, exaggerated illustration. What's the point? That purity of heart is really important. And sexual purity is really important. And we need to seek God for inner transformation that it's really important, right? So do whatever it takes to get there in your life. And so throughout these illustrations, he's given extreme examples to make a point. And that's exactly what he's doing today. Like when he says when someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other, that's not a law. That every time someone strikes you in any situation, you say, hey, hit me again. It's not a law that, hey, anytime someone asks you for money, how much? Anytime someone wants to borrow from you, great. You know, how much do you need? Well, they're extreme illustrations to make a point. Now you say, well, how do you know they're extreme illustrations. Well, first of all, I'd say it's the context. So you watch, the, because of six illustrations, he's doing this every time. So you can see that. But even more than that with some of these, when you look at the, uh, if you move on in the New Testament, you, what you'll see is even Jesus and his apostles don't take these as literal laws. Like, let me give you a couple examples. Jesus says, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other. Well, when we get to the end of this series, which is, you know, about 10 years from now, uh, Jesus will be on trial, right? He's on trial, John chapter 18. He's been arrested, and the high priest will ask him a question, and he will give an answer, and they will strike him on the cheek. They'll slap him on the cheek. So what does Jesus do? Does he turn the other cheek? No, he challenges that. And he says, why did you do that? He said, if I said something wrong, then why don't you correct me? But if I spoke the truth, then why are you hitting me in violation of the law? See, he challenged it. He didn't just say, hit me again. A very similar case, uh, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 22. He's been arrested in Jerusalem. He's being uh, about to be pulled apart by a mob. And the Roman centurion who's in charge is trying to find out why is everyone so angry? And so he says... uh, 
he says, hey, let's take him back and let's scourge him, let's whip him, kind of torture him to get at the truth. And Paul doesn't like turn the other cheek, you know, literally. He's like, he, he says, hey, listen, I'm a Roman citizen. That's illegal. So he doesn't say, yeah, go ahead and beat me. He says, no, that's wrong. Let me give another example. Jesus says, give to everyone who asks you. But later in the New Testament, the apostle Paul will write to the church of Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians Thessalonians 3. And uh, they have people there that are not willing to work, but they want the church to support them. They're asking him to find financial support. And Paul says, no, 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 don't give to those who ask you. It's like if they're not willing to work, they shouldn't eat. Let them starve. Like it's not real love to enable someone to be irresponsible. Are you with me? So, so even Jesus and the they don't live, these are extreme examples to make a point. And you say, well, what is the point? I'm so glad you asked. Number three. <laughs> Number three. So here's the point. Jesus' instructions, they illustrate the law of love. What Jesus wants us to understand is that his followers There is one law that rules our life. There is one standard that we always go to. There's one north star in the life of a follower of Jesus is that in every situation we ask, what would love do? Now, uh, when I talk about love, I'm not just talking about fuzzy, warm feelings, but I'm talking about a commitment to the other person's highest good. And it's not always easy to figure out that, what, what that is. Sometimes love's tough, sometimes it's tender, as we just, we just saw. Um, but, but for Jesus, he wants us to understand, if you want to, to be part of my kingdom, if you want to live a life that's truly right, the law that rules them all is the law of love. So, for example... Um, Let's, let's step back from this series, and I want to take you on just a short journey. I want to step back and kind of t- go, kind of see where we've been in this series, because what we want to do is kind of wrap it up. Like I said, like the final episode of a, a season show, it's going to wrap it all up. So I want to step back and where we've come from. I want you to take your Bibles, and I want you to look back. This is where we started this third season, back in chapter 5 and verse 13. Can you, can you look at that with me? 513. So Jesus starts off, this is the very first thing we read in this series a couple months ago. He says, you are the what? You're the salt of the earth. Go to verse 14. You are the what? You're the light of the world. So if you were here that week, we kicked out this series, Jesus is speaking to his followers. He says, hey, we live in a dark world. You live in a dark world. This is a world that doesn't know its head from its tail. It doesn't know which end is up. It doesn't really know who God is. It doesn't know who I am. It doesn't know the path to life. He says, so as my followers, you are the only ones who know the path to life. You're not like a light. You are the light. He says, therefore, it's extremely important that you light it up. When you light a lamp, you don't put it in the corner. You don't put it under a basket. You put it on a stand so it can light the whole room. That's your job. You are the light of the world. My followers, you're the light of the world. You need to light it up. And so he says in verse 16, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others. Light it up so they may see your good deeds. Remember, if you were here in Greek, your good works, your good life, and glorify your Father in heaven. 
So this is how this journey starts. So if we were to compare this series to a journey, I would compare it to like a mountain trek. Like we're hiking up a mountain together, right? So we start, base camp is the statement, you are the light of the world, light it up. And we ask Jesus, well, what does it look like? How do we light it up? He says, it's it's by your works, it's by your life. Okay, well, could you give us some examples? He says, yes, let me explain to you what true rightness and goodness looks like. He said, if you want to be part of my kingdom, part of my goodness, you have to kind of get rid of the old ways of thinking what righteousness looks like. It's religious righteousness. It's superficial righteousness. It's legalistic righteousness. It doesn't light up anything. It's part of the darkness. If you're going to follow me, your righteousness has to surpass that of the religious leaders. It's richer. It's higher. It's deeper. Let me give you six examples it says, true rightness, it's not just not killing somebody. It's learning to let go of your anger and pursue right relationships. That lights it up. He said, it's more than just not sleeping around with someone not your spouse. It's about letting God purify you from the inside out so you truly care about people. and You would never use them as objects of your gratification. You're seeking their best. It's, it's not just about getting divorced the right way or staying in a bad marriage. It's, it's building a great marriage, a love that lasts a lifetime, the shared life, God's vision. It's about that recapturing that vision. You light it up through your marriages. It's more than just like keeping your oaths uh, on these technicalities and learning how to make promises that are so, oh, no, I told the truth, you know. You might not have realized it, but actually what I said was, he said, no, no, it's fine. Like, it's, it's being a sort of person that's completely trustworthy, that your word is your bond, you're authentic, that your yes is yes, your no is no. People can trust you. And today, he says, it's more than giving people what they deserve. It's seeking their best. It's loving them. It's always taking the high road. It's even willing to sacrifice yourself for their good. It's about loving even your enemies. And so Jesus, what we've done is we've taken this journey and we are now at the top of the mountain and we can look down the mountain where we've come and it started with you are the light of the world. And the question was how do we light it up? We light it up. When we get to the top, we find that we light it up by living a life of love. That we love, uh, we love people, and not just those who love us, but we even love our enemies. Now, when you stop and think about th- this is the heart of the message of Jesus, is it? This is what he said, what's the most important thing? Love God and love people. This is why he came. This is what he's gonna model, going to the cross, dying for his enemies on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't realize what they're doing, seeking their best, even there as he's hanging there. He's modeling this radical, kind of ruthless, reckless love. And as you move out into the New Testament, then this becomes a story of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. (laughs) This is the story of the kingdom. This is the story of the gospel. Yeah, I've been thinking the last couple of months, this passage of scripture has been playing on me in new ways. And, you know, many times you have to, like, you have to do this unfiltered thing with lots of passages, not just Jesus. But there's a famous passage in, in Romans chapter 5. And Paul says, the Apostle Paul writes it, and he says, you know what? He says, in life, it doesn't happen very often, but in life sometimes, someone's willing to die for a good man. So, for example, 
Uh, some of you are kind of old enough to remember the Vietnam War. This happened a lot in the Vietnam War where because of the jungles and so on that you would often hear stories, or not often, but from time to time about someone who, for the sake of his buddies, would jump on a grenade, right? Give his life for them. We see this in the movies sometimes where someone will, maybe it's a ransom hostage situation and someone will say, hey, I will come and give myself and let that person go. Kind of this, this exchange happens. And so Paul says, you know, in life that happens sometimes. It doesn't happen very much. We're normally looking out for number one. But in life, every once in a while, you'll see an amazing act of sacrificial love where someone gives himself for a friend, for someone that they love. He says, but what's amazing, he says, is the story of our race is that while we were God's enemies, while we were against him, that he gave not just himself, but his son, that he gave him as a hostage for us. So he, he gave his, his son for us. And so if you look on your note sheet, in Romans 5, this is how Paul puts it. He says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, but... For a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. We see examples of that. He says, but God demonstrates his love for us while we were still what? Sinners. Now circle that word for a second. This is one of those words you have to strip off the cultural lenses, right? Like sinners, it's just not very, and all kinds of cultural things. And uh, a sinner kind of biblically is is a a rebel, right? They're they're like part of the rebel army. So it's like a king um, dying for a member of the opposite rebel army. And you'll see that in just a second. He said, God demonstrates his own love. While we're sinners, Christ Messiah died for us. For if while we were God's what? See, that's what a sinner is. God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. He said, I will send my son to jump on the grenade for the terrorist enemies. Uh, he says, how much more, having been reconciled, now that we've been brought back, will we be saved in the future when he returns through his life? And so, um, guys, this is who God is. And this is what Jesus says. Do you want to know what real righteousness looks like? Real righteousness is not about giving people what they deserve, treating others like they treat us. He said real righteousness is becoming like your father who gives us not what we deserve. And so at the end of the day, what does it look like to be a part of the kingdom, to follow King Jesus? It means to embrace this new calling that we will love others as he has loved us. We don't treat others as they deserve. As a Christ follower, we don't give people justice. We give them mercy. And so it raises a question then for us as we wrap up this series, as we wrap up this message there on your note sheet, discovering a higher calling. One final question. I just want us to reflect on this. And so the question is, are you, and this is not like a guilt thing, but just kind of reflection, are you living out the law of love in your life? Is this how you understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus? I think so many times we have missed this. We've heard so many stories well, the story is about Balaam, or the story about Moses, or the story about David, or the story about Gideon, or the story about Barak, or the story about Nebuchadnezzar, or Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, Nehemiah. We have heard so many stories. It's like we have so much information, but we have missed the North Star. That because of all the stories, we have missed the story. And the story is about a God who loves us when we were his enemies and came to die for us. And catch this, 
not just so we could be forgiven, but so that by the power of his spirit, we could be transformed to be the people we are created to be in the image of God, that we could be like our Father who loves his enemies. That is the higher calling. You call this series Discovering a Higher Calling. That is the calling. That in our lives, in every situation, we'd be asking this question, what does love require? And it's not always easy to figure that out. Sometimes love has to be tough. Sometimes love is tender. We're getting the Holy Spirit to help us. But this is, this is the calling of the Christ follower. And once you recognize this, once you state it, you begin to see it throughout the New Testament. We already saw it with Jesus, right? What's the most important? Love God, love people. He illustrates it. You know, with the, the example of the Good Samaritan, right? Remember, Jesus' uh, 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 attorney comes up to him. Hey, what's the most important thing? Love God, love neighbor. Remember what the attorney asked him in Luke 10? He said, so, so who is my neighbor? Do you remember that follow-up question? Who is my neighbor? Why is he asking that? Because in Luke 19... Love your neighbor as yourself. Hate your enemies. There was a lot of discussion about who's my neighbor. And you remember what Jesus says. He tells the story of the good Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews are enemies. The Samaritan, instead of hating his enemy, loves his enemy. Jesus says, that's what it looks like to love your neighbor. So Jesus has said, this is what's most important. Love God. Love people, I mean, including your enemies, seek their highest good. And once he has said that, you begin to see that message and become the message of the early movement of Jesus. They get it. It's the North Star. So, for example, there in your note sheet, I just put three quick examples. Uh, Romans 13, Paul, talking about Jesus, says, whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. What's he mean? Well, Jesus said that all the rest of the law is just a fulfillment of loving God, loving people. And he says, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Look at the next one, uh, Galatians 5. Paul says, the entire law in the Old Testament is fulfilled by keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Look at the next one, James chapter 2. James, younger brother of Jesus, half-brother, earliest document in our New Testament. If you really keep the royal law, uh, what do you mean royal law? Law of the king, law of the kingdom, kingdom law. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself you are doing right. And so Jesus boils it down. What does it mean to have greater righteousness? All these other things about anger and sexual purity and about keeping your oaths and about marriage, they're all just an explanation of love. We've come to the top of the mountain. We can look back. He says, as my follower, there is one rule that rules them all. There is one law of life for you, and that's to love others as I have loved you, you grow up, be like your father. So the question is, and for our lives, is how are we doing? Are we living that law of love? And I honestly, for many Christ followers, we have never really understood this. That in our life, in spite of all the teaching we have had about Jesus dying for us, we've never understood that Jesus died for us not just to forgive us, but as a model of how we should live our lives. Like, he didn't die just so he could be forgiven. 
He died because he loved us, and he's modeling for us how we're to love others. And we've never really got that. And so what happens, we're followers of Jesus, but we are still living as eye for an eye. In our personal relationships, we still feel like we are being a good Christ follower if we treat others as they treat us. That's fair. That's just. But Jesus said, that's not what real righteousness is like. Real righteousness is not treating others as they deserve. It's treating them like they don't deserve, like I've treated you. And so think through your own life. You know, how do you respond to the enemies in your life? It could be as simple as a guy who cuts you off in traffic. It could be the, as, uh, the person at your job that's always hogging the glory and taking credit for the job that you did. It could be uh, a neighbor with that barking dog it won't refuse. Uh, I've had experience with that. Um, fortunately, not here in my former life. Um, I, I thought there's so many. I said, really? Could I be a Christian in poison? Is that okay? Uh, is it, um, anyway, uh, you know, what? Uh, hey, it's that relative, it's that son or daughter who's betrayed you. Uh, it's that ex-spouse in our life that's hurt us so much. It's a boss at work that's harsh and demanding and unreasonable. It's a person who's slandered you. Or maybe it's not in your personal life. Maybe it's bigger cultural issues. How do you respond to, uh, to cultural enemies? Those that you would see, hey, maybe from your, they're on different sides of the political fence. They're on different kind of religious values. Um, how do we respond to those uh, like in social media? I think social media, honestly, is a great window into our hearts. If you want to know what's in your heart, Jesus said, out of the heart flows the abundance, uh, or out of the, the abundance of, of words flows the heart. And so if you want a, a window in your heart, check out your social media. How do you respond to your enemies in social media? See, often we seem to think that if someone is wrong, it gives us the right to hate. That's eye for an eye. That's kind of how, you see what I'm saying? But for Jesus, it's like, no, no, we love our enemies. And this is not just theoretical. This is why he went to the cross. And it's not just theoretical. We see this lived out in the life of the early church. Like today we started with a story of uh, this violent situation that they could never erase from their minds, or this act of violence sparked, blown into a gust uh, by, by when they never saw it coming. This is a story of life in the early church. Like, you may not know this, but in the early church, after Jesus leaves, the first few weeks, months, couple of years, not sure exactly how long the chronology is, but initially things were going really well. The, the Holy Spirit had come. People were coming to Christ like mad uh, thousands are coming to Jesus, they're loving one another, and even those who weren't Christ followers it really admired and respected them. You see that in Acts 2. This is they found favor with the people. And, uh, and so in the early days, it was going well. And then the conflict began, especially at the high level between the religious leaders who had uh, been behind the death of Jesus and between the leaders of the early movement of Jesus. And there's some tension that's mounting, but it's still not really trickling down to the whole church yet. And yet, when you get to chapter 6, it blows up. And it's just a single event that ignites a forest fire of persecution that is so great 
that this one event is going to cause all the Christians to have to run for their lives from Jerusalem. Everyone but the apostles has to run for their lives. And so it's just one event, it's a flashpoint, turns into a firestorm of persecution. And that event, you may remember, is the arrest of a very gifted leader named uh, Stephen. And so Stephen is arrested, and at his trial, things get out of control. And against even Jewish law and against Roman law, it turns into a mob. And they take Stephen take out outside the city walls, and they begin to stone him. They don't have a legal right to do this. It's illegal, but they're just out of control. And I want you to picture this. Many of us have never really thought of a stoning, but if, you've, if you kind of picture this, I mean, someone's standing in a pit. They're being pelted by stones, and so it's a slow death, and it's an extremely painful death because these stones are hitting you. They're tearing your clothes. Now they're ripping your flesh off. Now your bones are being crushed, and you're just being pelted, and you're trying to protect yourself, and just the pain is incredible, and you're going to die slowly until you cannot... You cannot handle it anymore. You're going to crumple down, and you're going to pass out, and you're going to die, right? So it's a very painful thing. And yet in that event, Luke, Luke records this, and I think he's recording it for several reasons. But one of the reasons is because, if remember, Luke and Acts are volume one and volume two of the early church. Remember, they were both written by, by Luke. So in Luke, at the end of the gospel, while Jesus is on the cross, you may remember this, he prays for his persecutors Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now we're just a few months, maybe a year or two ahead. The movement of Jesus is going on, and the first martyr in the early church is about to give their life for the movement of Jesus. And as he's going down, some of you will remember this, but he says to Jesus, he sees Jesus, he says, please do not hold this sin against them. The student has become like the teacher. This teaching is not just theoretical. It's not just up there for placards or, or for a, you know, kind of cool sign on the, on the wall, inspirational. Like, Jesus is serious. He says, if you're going to follow me, your righteousness has to be greater. And what it means is we're going to come under his leadership, and we're going to bow the knee, and we're going to allow him to begin to teach us and we're going to have to grow in this area. I don't know if you've ever tried to forgive or love your enemies. It sounds really great until you have an enemy. And when you have an enemy, it is one of the hardest things we're ever asked to do. But can I tell you something? The way we get better at it is not by pretending the calling isn't there by embracing the calling. Like we can't become followers of Jesus living out the life he's called us to live. We can't do that until we embrace the calling. So as long as we defend our anger and defend our hatred and we defend our revenge and we defend our bitterness, we will never be transformed. The first step to transformation is embracing the higher calling. Is this is what God's after in our life. And so the question is a follower of Jesus. This is not optional equipment on the Christian life. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That we will be transformed and we will learn to love others as God loved us. This is the greater righteousness that Jesus came to bring. 
And so today, as we bring this series and this service to an end, we're going to be celebrating communion. Now, if you're new here, you've never done communion with us before, the way we do it is around the room and up at the top of stadium seating, there are tables, right? And they have the elements. And so what's communion about? Communion is about Romans 5, what we saw today. It's, it's about remembering what Jesus did, dying for us as his enemies so we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. And so as we come to communion, we are remembering what Christ did, dying for his enemies so we could be made right. But here's what I want to challenge you. As we come to communion, we are not just celebrating the reckless love of God for us. We are being reminded of our calling that we would love our enemies as he loved us. So as we're here today, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you as we stand up, as we go into worship, as we move around the room, find a place to pray, I would encourage you to do that. Stand up, find a place to pray, reflect, think about what you're learning, what God's doing in your life. But I would encourage you, don't take communion yet because communion is a sign of relationship between God and you through Jesus. It's for those who have come to follow Jesus. You want to hold off on that until you've given your life to Christ. It's like you don't wear a wedding ring until you're married. So we want to wait for that. But here's what I'd say. If you're here today and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, but as we wrap up this series, you say, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I understand the message now that while I was an enemy, Christ died for me so I could be forgiven. And I want to enter into that relationship. I want to become part of that kingdom. I want the gift of his Holy Spirit to begin this transformation in me so I can love others as he has loved me. If, if that's where you're at today, there is no better way to do that than to go to communion and to receive the bread that represents his broken body and the, the, the wine that represents his blood and to ask Christ into your life and to uh, forgive you and to enter this new journey with him, this new life with him. So if you'd stand with me, I'm going to pray us into this time and uh, ask God to meet us. This may be a time of repentance for you as you come to the communion together. This may be a time of repentance where you say, you know what, I've never really understood this calling uh, to love others as he's loved. I've never really understood this calling. I've been living my life by eye for an eye, and I've never really understood this higher calling that to this law of love. And so if so, then what do we do? We just own that. We ask God to forgive us for that. We ask him to empower us. So may this be a time where as a church we embrace this higher calling. Let's pray together. Lord, we just come before you and we thank you for your amazing love that you have loved us when we were enemies and you call us not just to be forgiven but to be transformed that we might then become the light of the world by loving others as you've loved us. So we pray you'd meet us at this time. You'd forgive us if we've not embraced us in the past, if we've not been obedient. And we pray that you would show us the way forward. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And that reckless love of God is not something he just wants to give. It's something he wants to give through us to others that we would be transformed. And it, it will not be easy. It's one step at a time. But I know this, that the first step in this journey is responding to the call. 
that this is what it means to be a, a Christ follower, nothing more, nothing less than to live out a life of love as he's loved us. And as we embrace this law, it will reveal our weakness, it will reveal our inadequacy, but it will drive us to him. That there, that under the leadership of his spirit, that we can be transformed, changed, discipled, and trained in how to do this so that we can truly become the light of the world and light it up. Amen? Amen. All right, uh, as we go, the next two or three weeks, there's so much going on, and Christmas is right in the middle of it. So uh, let's talk about that. Inside your program today, you may have noticed that you have not one, not two, but three invite cards, which is like the trifecta at the racetrack. Anyway, so uh, next weekend, we've already talked about Christmas. I'm not going to belabor that, but just want to encourage you, be praying. Is there someone in your life that God wants you to, to invite to come and hear about the reckless love of God? We're going to have a great time next weekend. Uh, then the following weekend, we're kicking off a two-week series uh, about transformation. And so we've talked a lot about that transformation this year, God's vision for our lives. But one of the things we've learned is that transformation is God's vision. It's not automatic. That we need to come under his leadership, listen and follow, and actually train like an athlete for it. And so we're going to spend two weeks kicking off the new year talking about how do we prepare for a new year to train for transformation. And that comes uh, the very first week, you know, New Year's Day that weekend. And then, of course, the following weekend, we kick off Rooted. So a lot going on, but I just want to get this on your radar because I know about a week from today, you're going to go into the Christmas coma from which you're not going to come out for about two weeks. So while you're still alive and with me, I wanted you to know what's coming, all right? So this week, may this be a week uh, where you know and experience in a fresh way the reckless love of God. May this be a week where you embrace this high calling of Jesus, that we would not be religiously righteous, but truly righteous. A righteousness that's higher, deeper, and richer. A righteousness that flows from the heart of God. A righteousness that's not based even on justice, but is based on love. That we would be living out this life of reckless love. So until next week, may the Holy Spirit lead you, guide you, every step of the way. If you need prayer, over to my right, both auditoriums. Until then, I'll see you on Christmas. God bless.